You know, um, Mother's Day, uh, we've recognized mothers, and this, this is a complex time for womanhood and what it means to be a woman in the 21st century, in the, in the Western world especially. But, but Mother's Day, while I was pastoring, was always a problem because it always came close to the celebration of Pentecost. And, you know, what do we do? Do we talk about Mother's Day? Do we talk about Pentecost? Do we talk about them both? What, what, what goes on? Well, today we're talking about Pentecost. Okay? Uh, all of you people who experience motherhood, uh, it's not a put down to you, I pray. But I pray what we'll say will have something significant even to say about being a mother in this day and age. I want to turn your attention to Paul's first letter to Corinth, Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, and the translation that you have will not uh, vary much from what I will read. But this is an important passage of Scripture. But I want to say before I begin reading that... uh, We're really doing Paul a disservice by starting at chapter 2, verse 6. We ought to be starting at chapter 1, verse 10. That's where the body of the letter begins. And this section really goes to the end of chapter 4. And so hopefully sometime you'll be able to, to read that section. It's a marvelous section. But we see how these... Eleven verses fit into Paul's argument and what he's trying to say about this marvelous sense of God's revelation through his spirit to humanity. This is an incredible teaching for those of you who do know it. And for those of you who don't, well, we'll talk about it for a moment. When the Church of the Nazarene began back in... uh, 1895, up in Los Angeles, and then as it became a church in 1908, a denomination in Pilot Point, Texas, the church was unique among many denominations because of the emphasis that it placed upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. By the time that I began my pastoral ministry, In the late 60s through the early 70s, there was a form of Christian teaching that really began to to emphasize strongly the work of the Spirit. In fact, uh, in historical retrospect, I would want to say that it did so in such a way that it became an aberrant teaching because it failed to continue to be tied to Scripture itself. And I remember not arguing with the person, but speaking with the person one day who was talking to me about what had taken place in their life. And they, they told me about this incredible experience that happened. And I said, but, but where do you tie that to Holy Scripture? And the response was, that's not important. I just know what happened to me. See, that's pretty dangerous. And when we allow the the ministry of the Spirit to somehow operate upon us experientially without any real tie to Scripture, we'd better watch where we're headed because we're moving down an improper path. 
a path that can lead us astray. And I want us to talk about the work of the Spirit in this section of 1 Corinthians in a way that we don't always think about the Spirit. You see, frequently when we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, we think about, you know, the flashing lights and the, you know, the glitter and the glitz and the power and all that God wants to do in our world. What the Spirit really wants to do is to reveal the work of Jesus to us in the midst of an age that could care less. You realize that, don't you? Our, our world really doesn't care much about what we think Jesus has done to bring about our redemption and to allow us to know the fullness of God in our lives. So that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6 and reading through verse 16. Yet we do speak a wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye hath not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men... Know the thoughts of a man, except the spirit of a man which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, and yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And now backing up and reading that verse that I missed, that is so important to us, that seventh verse. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory. Paul was writing this letter to the ancient city of Corinth. Corinth sat on the little isthmus between Greek proper and what was called the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And the ships would come in either on the west side or the east side of, of that little isthmus. They would unload their goods. They would transport them the seven miles across the land and reload them, and the ships would go their way. So it was a it was a really significant city in the ancient world, very cosmopolitan, very transient, and lacked a great stability. Now, in the ancient world, Corinth had been known for its decadence. It was a sinful city. 
Lots of temples, lots of worship of the pagan gods and goddesses, but a city known for its less than appropriate behavior. And it is here to this city that some think in the first century might have been at least 200,000, 250,000 strong. Paul writes his letter to a little fledgling church attempting to find the means by which it can be held together. You don't have to read far in the letter to know that they were fighting with each other. They were seeing who could be the most spiritual. They were trying to get some kind of pecking order, you know, that I'm better than you are because, you know, old brother so-and-so baptized me, and that makes me pretty good. And into this mess, Paul finds lodging for 18 months, does his ministry amongst the people, leaves and now writes this letter. He's heard some of the problems that continue in the church from what he calls Chloe's people. And then he has received a letter from the household of Stephanus. And they're needing some apostolic authority to try to hold this congregation together in the midst of this very subversive pagan environment. And so Paul attempts to help them to understand what the truth of God is really about. Because he believes that God's word has been revealed to humanity by the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at what we're trying to understand this morning. Now, here's my problem. The first point I want to speak to you about cannot be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. I am aware of that. I want you to know. <laughs> but it's not far in front of where we have read. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and remember I've told you this is a very tight argument. Paul talks about the work of the Spirit And helping us to understand who Jesus is as the wisdom of God and the power of God. Something that looks like foolishness to those who look on from the perspective of the world. Who live with the wisdom of this age. What I would want you to see is that maturity, in Paul's mind, recognizes the uniqueness of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. Now, do you see that word mature there? Paul says, we speak a wisdom among the mature. Now, some of your translations might have the word perfect. Some might have the word complete. But it means the same thing. They are the teleoi. And they are to be distinguished from what Paul calls in chapter 3, verse 1, if you dare look ahead down there, to those who are but babes in Christ. I learned the term from the old King James as a boy, those people we called carnal Christians. And there's even a wonder whether they were really Christians at all. They were going to church. But they really had not been transformed by the teaching of the Spirit in their lives. And so the work of the Spirit is to help the church to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, what would happen if we went downtown San Diego this afternoon? 
Maybe down by Petco Park. The, the, the Padres in town today? Anybody? Are they in town? We go down, we go down by uh, Petco. And we begin to ask some people who Jesus is and what has he done. What do you think they would say? It's not a dumb question. But boy, we would get some really interesting answers, wouldn't we? Oh, he, 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 was, he was a good man, great teacher. Well, I don't know, but we talk about him at Easter, and he and the bunny must be working together, doing something. There's an understanding of Jesus abroad, but it certainly isn't the understanding of this one in whom God has brought about redemption and reconciliation and our ability to find freedom from sin in the midst of this world in which we live. This is a new teaching, and it is the Spirit that helps us to really grasp what that means and how in this one Jesus we find new life. How come you have experienced that and so many other people haven't? Well, it's really easy to say. Because you've heard the message, and the Spirit has burned that on your heart. And so many in our city have never heard that. Do you realize that uh, those of you who teach elementary grades, that maybe the only time children hear the name of Jesus on a continuing basis is when someone in their midst is cursing? you realize that? That's our world today. When I moved to Hawaii more than 40 years ago to pastor our church in Kaneohe, I did a little bit of demographic work on the people on the island of Oahu, and I realized that about 8% of that population really called themselves Christians. 8%. And I realized that most of the people on that island had not grown up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They really didn't know who Jesus was. And a part of our task as a church was to help people see who Jesus is. Now, 40 plus years later, we live in a community where I would assume that more than 8% bear the name of Christ. But certainly not a whole lot more than that. And where kids have not grown up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's a different world than when I grew up, than when many of you grew up. Not all of you, for certain. But what we have to do is we have to be convinced that this message of Jesus that has come to us now by God's spirit of revelation is that message of truth that we can take to the world. And that we become missionaries, not merely in Africa or Europe or in South America, but right here to the transforming power of God that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because people don't know. And they're certainly not learning much about it in the video streaming that they're watching. They're certainly not learning much about it in the entertainment world, where are they going to learn it? 
Where are they going to hear it if not from us? So the first thing I want to say about the ministry of the Spirit is that to the mature, God's Spirit has revealed who Jesus is and the work that he has accomplished through his death and resurrection. Through that life-changing act of God that Paul tells us about in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. That God was demonstrating his love to us in the cross. That when Christ died, you see, we were reconciled to him. God demonstrating his love to us that we might understand Jesus as his wisdom and as his power. That's the first thing. But also to the mature, the Spirit helps us to understand that God has given us things that appear to be foolishness to the world. Do you see verse 9, that quotation that is there? Things which ears have not heard and eyes have not seen. Things that have never entered into the heart of man. It is these things that God has prepared for those who love him. These things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. These things that God predestined to tell us even before the foundation of the world. That we might know this truth of Jesus made real in our lives. And it is here that the gospel is shining forth because we find things inspired by the Spirit through God's holy word that help us to proclaim a message that although it looks like absurdity and foolishness to those who've never heard, gives to us a view of reality that we cannot reject lest we miss God's best for us. You know, one thing I like about uh, millennials, that we're being told at least, that, that millennials want authenticity. They want something that's real. Something that is not just fabricated to look good. Now listen, you talk about the cross, and there's nothing fabricated there to look good. I mean, that was horrendous. Nobody wanted to die on the cross. And to tell somebody that you had given your spiritual allegiance, the allegiance of your whole life to a crucified Lord, seemed almost beyond our ability to comprehend. So if it was tough for Paul to be an evangelist in his day, it's equally tough in our day. We know that. But what we dare not do is water down the message to such an extent that it can no longer transform us and give us a distinction between the wisdom of God and the wisdom that is alive in this world. Now, now let me talk about worldly wisdom for a moment. It's gotten us a lot of good things, hasn't it? You know what they say about Thomas Edison. If Thomas Edison had not invented electricity, well, he didn't invent it. He discovered it, right? But if he had not discovered it, we'd have to go home and watch television in the dark tonight. I'm grateful for Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison. 
Lots of good things have come out of the minds of men and women who've studied and prepared and researched and given to us a life that's just pretty good. But you see, such learning, Paul is saying, can only take us so far. And it can't quite get to that truth of God's spirit that God wants to reveal to us. When the Olympics come around, you know, whether it's the winter games or the summer games, people are always trying to strive to break those records, you know, and to be the best. But there are limits to being the best. Now, I can remember, because I'm an old guy, I can remember when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. People said it was going to be almost impossible for a human being to run faster than a four-minute mile. Roger Bannister showed him wasn't true. He broke it. And now, in any race of any quality at all, everybody in the race is going to break the four-minute mile. But you see, there will be a limit to what can be accomplished by running someplace. Jumping the same way. Whether it's high jumping, whatever, pole vaulting. You see, there's a problem there. That no matter how high you jump, you're always fighting against that unseen force called gravity. And it's going to push you down. Ricardo, I've never seen gravity. I've felt it affects a couple of times, but I ain't never seen it. But it's there. See. And if it's so in sports events... It's so in our ability to reason and think. Our reasoning can get us so far. But it can't quite get us to God and the ability that God wants to give to us in being His transformed people. That comes, Scripture says, by divine revelation. And that's why we keep reading this book. Now for you young people who are here. If I could live your life for you, I would want nothing more than for you to take God's Word seriously and to begin reading God's Word. Don't start in Ecclesiastes. Can I tell you, don't even start in Ruth. Good books, don't start in Esther. Start in the Gospels. Why don't you read the four Gospels like for the next two years or something? And get to know Jesus so well that wherever you go, you can talk about the good news that you find in Him. And if you did that, it would change your life. You would understand afresh The wonder of who he was. And God's spirit can be at work in what you're doing and how you're living. And how you're interacting with your peers and what you're doing. Nothing more important than that. Nothing. Because you see, God's spirit wants to teach us about the things he has prepared for us. 
Things that we can't find in a test tube. Things that we can't see in a telescope or a microscope. Things we can't set down and philosophically reason through. We can't do it. But what we can do is open ourselves to God's Spirit to minister to our hearts and lives. Now, when I say this, it's a little bit dangerous here. We need to talk about this. Because, you see, I can say, well, it appears that God has said this to me, and it might be the screwiest thing that we've ever heard. And so we talk to one another. We begin to study God's Word together. And we begin to share what we're learning. And somebody might say to me, you know, Bob, you said this, but but I'm not certain that You can really back that up with Scripture. Maybe we better look at that again. And we begin to look together and grow together. And so there is that wonderful interchange between the individual and the congregation that works together, that makes life now filled with truth. And hearing God's voice in this revelation that the Spirit wants to bring to us. So, Mature people, by God's Spirit, understand who Jesus is and what he's done. Mature people, by God's Spirit, begin to grasp the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But there's more. There's also the fact that maturity enables us to trust the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not only that it's there. But we give ourselves to it and trust it. Were you to read scripture? And on Wednesday nights in a Bible study, we're going through the book of Acts. And John Payton has been leading us through there. And we've talked about Acts chapter 2 and that marvelous section. Chapter 1. They're gathered together in the upper room, the 120. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and they hear what sounds like the rushing of a mighty wind. They, they hear that sound of the wind. They see the tongues of fire. And what happens then? They go to the streets and everybody hears them speaking about Jesus in their own native language. People from all over the world. And Peter stands up and he preaches that marvelous, marvelous message toward the end of chapter 2. And at the end of it, I think it's verse 36, he says, This Jesus, whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And he talks about Jesus From his new understanding of being filled with the Spirit. He's not talking about something so extraordinary and exceptional. Nobody could understand it or believe it. He's talking about something that they knew that had happened right there in Jerusalem. Jesus had been crucified there hardly six weeks before. And now he says, God has made this one both Lord and And Christ. We worship and honor Him. 
And so the Spirit is bringing to us this firm reality of, of, of the teaching of Jesus. And so I would want to say to you that to have the mind of Christ, and that's where we want to get because that's that last statement in verse 16 that closes out this second chapter. To have the mind of Christ is to have that perspective of who Jesus is that allows us to really accept and to tolerate the thinking of the foolishness of the cross. Because let me tell you, folks, that's pretty foolish. There was nothing more humiliating in the ancient world than the act of crucifixion. We clean it up pretty good, but but we're big people. We can talk about this. You realize that it was the ultimate act of humiliation. It was usually done on busy intersections where everybody could see because Rome was using it as a form of social control. And they were saying, you mess with Rome and you could be next. And it was a hideous way to die. But more than that. There you hung naked, exposed for everyone to see. Unable to hide any kind of indignities of your life. The mocking, the jeering, the laughing, the scorning. All of that that took place. And there is our Lord. Taking that kind of abuse that God might demonstrate his love to us. That we might know the transforming power of his grace even in our lives. And it is the spirit that activates that truth deep within us and we can say, thank God. Thank God. And the good news is, He didn't just die for me. He didn't just die for you. He died for us. For the sins of the whole world, John tells us. That's the good news. That's what it's all about. And we find that sense of hope. And we find that sense of God's faithfulness. Even as we experience the wonder of Of the love of Jesus. What's it about? It's about a life. That is committed. Wholly. To God. Not just a little bit. Not just. When it's convenient. But you know. 24 7. 365. There ain't no break from it folks. Every day. Every moment we are following Jesus. For some of us who grew up in the church, I think I think we, we I'm glad that I did. <laughs> Certainly am. But but sometimes it's almost like a curse to us because we assume too many things. And what we have to do we have to get tough on ourselves and say, now am I just being like I always was because I've been in the church since day one? Or am I radically committed to this truth? 
You see, it's not just about convenience. It's not just about, I'll do it when it's, you know, popular. No. We'll do it when it's not popular, if we're really following Jesus. If God's Spirit has really burned that truth into our lives, that we are the people of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, given new life through Him, reflecting the wonder of God's grace and love in a needy world. Hey, that's good news. That's the gospel right there. You wonder what the gospel is? That's it. That's it. We live that life. Now, this final thing. To live such a life is going to separate us a lot from some of our friends. Doesn't mean we have to ignore them. Doesn't mean we have to leave them. But it means we can't always do what they want us to do. It means we can't always be like they are. Because we are following Jesus. Not because, you know what, I go to this church, it's pretty strict, and I can't do that because of what my church says. If we're there, folks, let's give it up and quit. That's nonsense. But what it means to follow Jesus radically in a world that could care less is really significant. So, I reach that age where retirement is coming. I don't have, you know, students to hassle like I used to. So, I'm going to hassle you. Got an assignment for you. I want you sometime this week to read Job 28. You read the book of Job lately? It's wonderful. But read Job 28. And it's going to talk about where wisdom is found. And you're going to hear these wonderful exploits of humanity, finding the great gemstones, doing the great mining. And humanity can find so much, but they can't find God's wisdom. That is what comes even in that Old Testament teaching through the work of God himself. Then I want you to read 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about the resurrection of the body. You see, in Corinth, they were troubled about the fact that people were going to die. They knew that. But, but what, what happened to us spiritually, because they wanted to get rid of this body, those, those pagan Greeks did not have a Jewish understanding of creation being good, as we read in Genesis chapter 1. Very good. They thought the body was evil, and we wanted to get rid of it. So when Socrates drinks the hemlock in Athens, he's thinking his spirit's going to be released, and he's going to lose the body, and he's going to do whatever pure spirits do, and just have a great time, thinking great thoughts and doing... You see, Paul talks about not the resurrection of our spirit. Paul talks about the resurrection of our bodies. The resurrection of Jesus' body. And the Corinthians just had to be going crazy over that. They they could not understand that. But Paul's not going to give it up. And he says in chapter 6, the second half of verse 19 and verse 20, 
He says there, he tells them, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Our bodies are a means of glorifying God. Not something of which we have to be ashamed. But a point of our glory because God is living within us by his spirit. And his truth is activated right there. And young and old alike. We bear the marks of Jesus because we understand the truth of God's word. To have the mind of Christ, it's really pretty easy. It's to allow the Spirit to teach us who Jesus is and what he has done. It is to gain that perspective that the world views as foolishness. It's not that they just think we're dumb. They've never encountered God's spirit. They don't know the truth. And it's our task to help them to see in our lives and to hear in our words the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, be with us this day. May your grace, may your word, may your love, may your faithfulness, Lord, come alive in our lives as we faithfully follow Jesus and continue to be taught by your Holy Spirit one day at a time. May God's blessing be with you. And as we sing together, May these words come alive in our hearts. God bless you.